but what we talk about about though about the um the transition from from the new deal and away from that getting more into the you know employee sponsored employer excuse me sponsored uh, uh wellness or, or or assistance programs uh you say that it um, sort of supercharges under the under obamacare which is this moment of enormous expansion for companies and schemes that are ubiquitous because they are not just tacitly encouraged by the government as they would have been in the 70s under nixon but that they are now sort of there's a huge bonanza uh, for for companies offering these uh, these kinds of services. So with the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010, it actually like directly incentivized employers to adopt these health and wellness benefits. There was this um, part called the Safeway Amendment, which uh, refers to this supermarket chain in the U.S. Um, and their CEO at the time was kind of boasting in the media um, and, and to all of these politicians about how over, I think it was a period of four years, he had managed or Safeway had managed to keep their healthcare costs stagnant because of their employee wellness program, which required em- employees to meet certain health metrics and enroll in this, again, like fitness um, and wellness kind of entire program. And so anyways, it turned out that a Washington Post re- reporter, I think, debunked this and it was all misinformation. Safeway had not actually kept its healthcare costs flat. But um, regardless of that, the Safeway Amendment was included in the ACA. And what it did was it increased the amount of incentives and penalties that a company is permitted to offer by 10%. So it's now, which meant it was now up to 30% of total premiums or cost sharings. So companies could offer incentives through like reduced premiums, for employees if they met a particular health metric or enrolled in a certain employee wellness program. Um, it could be tied to like achieving a certain weight, lowering their cholesterol, um, some sort of fitness goal. There were all different types. And I mean, what we talked about towards the beginning of the episode about that sort of very ominous Ford plan, you know, this is, it's the same thing, but again, with the classic um, classic Obama style, and it's also replicated among sort of Obama's equivalents in the UK, uh, of shrugging your shoulders, uh, saying that the sta- that um, some company with, with some kind of f- flashy new piece of technology will essentially come in and square the impossible circle of just sweeping away, with, uh, whether that is the um, something like the state or e- at least effective interventions uh, because they're too expensive or too difficult or whatever. Um, and then we just create uh, you know this this bonanza of you know companies saying you only you're only going to be able to afford a cheaper premium if you like starve yourself for a few days to put it ghoulishly. Hmm. Guys, we're partnering with Asda on their new fat bastard program. It's commonly said that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. But don't worry, there's no doctors left. They've all moved to Australia. <laughs> it's much nicer. Um, and also, I, I, I took a look at a report uh, from Deloitte on employer data collection, which basically in this vein, right, says, collect what you want about your employees, but make sure they opt in first. And that... Um, oh, good. But... Right, that you can create value in your Simply organization. trick them. <laughs> <laughs> but you can create value in your organization by considering, for example, worker happiness. In addition to benefits being being happier at work, such as improved for wellness and performance. <laughs> Just like in 2023, you have to learn the moral of a Christmas carol. Hmm. <laughs> 
It's like, check this shit out. Maybe if they're miserable all the time, you actually lose money on that. Have you thought about that, maybe? <laughs> uh, I'm afraid, actually, Bob Cratchit, it says here you ate a whole goose. <laughs> so um, your insurance premium is going to be going up. There's, there's a lot of it's fat a in lot that. Of, yeah. Mm. But that worker worker happiness could also improve teamwork and social encounters at the group level. Hitachi experimented mm. with improving the happiness levels of its employees using wearables. Yeah, they had that magic wand. Yeah. How would Hitachi do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An accompanying mobile app that offered employees suggestions for increasing feelings of happiness. It seems like all of these companies just provide the same thing, which is some of the lyrics to Don't Worry, Be Happy either texted to you or shown your, your computer or skywritten over the office, but it all amounts mm. to please stop crying at your desk, mm. basically. Yeah. It's so funny, too, because it's like, like you think of all these things that would make workers happy, like more PTO, higher wages, childcare, comprehensive healthcare, right? And it's like, no, we're just going to keep going down this road. Yeah, we can't do any of that, but what we can do is magic beans. Mm. People love beans. And, you know, this, they actually say that, that Hitachi goes on during testing, the psychological capital of workers rose by 33%. So that's something. My psychological capital. Oh, baby. <laughs> that, that treasure which neither moths nor rust shall devour your psychological <laughs> capital. And profits oh, yeah. increased by 10%, demonstrating how creating value at the employee level had far-reaching impacts on the business. Creating value at the mm. employee level. It's, it's the Biden so thing, you know, helps the economy, hurts nobody, right? Um, yeah, me meeting cyberpunk Karl Marx, who's got one, like, robot eye and is wearing a trench coat, and he's just handing you a copy of his book called Psycho Capital. <laughs> so, but um, you're getting at, like, I think this is something where a lot of the scholarship, like, there's kind of a division in the scholarship on employee wellness programs. So there's kind of the HR, human resource management benefit studies, and they're mainly kind of preoccupied with like return on investments. And then you have kind of the other side of the scholarship, which tends to think more about worker surveillance, critiques of neoliberalism, um, the kind of use of data collection, possible lifestyle discrimination, and so forth. And what's interesting about the return on investment stuff is, you know, employee wellness programs, like I said, they're not required. And then there's no real model for how they are implemented because employers can implement them and design them in any way they want. So you could have, um, you could have like, it could be like um, the different kind of parts of the benefits maze that the primer talks about um, around like a point solution and a benefits manager and so forth. Or it could just be literally like a smoking cessation group or something that meets in person. And so it allows for kind of part of the difficulty then is a lot of these studies, they might find like worker satisfaction at that, but it's like how universal, you know, because they can be designed in any sort of way. So it's hard to kind of say like in general that this is the impact. Going back to your point about like the Affordable Care Act, I mean, one of the things about the Affordable Care Act was it was an important victory for thinking about trying to get more people able to get health care. And there are a lot of people who previously had difficulty getting health care coverage that were able to under that policy. But it is an important thing to consider that that policy incentivizes uh, for, you know, employee wellness programs, which is another way of saying it tries to create a benefit for the employer to have an employee wellness program. So what does it mean that as there's this kind of push to expand healthcare coverage, right, to um, people that might have been, had difficulty getting before, there's also this kind of 
increased like kind of promotion by the federal government, at least through these um, Safeway amendments and so forth, I would say, um, uh, to, you know, have an employee wellness program too, to supposedly offset the cost of kind of healthcare coverage, you know what I mean? And so it speaks to the bigger problem of the fact that, again, our healthcare is very much connected to our employers in the United States or employment status. You know, it's the um, it's that it always must. And again, this is increasing in the UK as the NHS mm-hmm. is sort of quietly being uh, dismantled, is that your ability to get healthcare is tied to your ability to generate value for your boss. And mm-hmm. that the I think the point that we've been sort of driving at here, right, the, the thing that it's worth sort of hammering home is that the wellness capitalism approach gives you very little wellness in exchange for quite a bit of exploitability. And I think what it also does is, you know, it it kind of, the technology is also a way of trying to demand like a quick fix to your problem. Meaning like we expect you to kind of quickly get healed or quickly get well or, or whatever. And this is a bigger issue, I think, if we think, if, since we're talking about like health insurance and so forth, it's like... Um, you know, I'm not a, a, a psychiatry expert, but I have friends who are doing, you know, work in like psychotherapy and so forth. And if you look at in the United States, for example, increasingly like, like, so therapy might be covered. And we saw like with the pandemic, some of these changes in kind of therapy. So we have a colleague um, who is at Data and Society, Livia um, Garofalo, who's doing work on teletherapists and kind of the labor politics for like therapists doing teletherapy and, and so forth and working with these platforms. So there was these changes where on one hand, it looks like, you know, um, health insurance providers were willing to make some accommodations around therapy, not always kind of, you know, allowing for kind of different, you know, not charging you for certain kind of um, co-pays and so forth for a certain period. But what's also happening in the U S and also in some other countries, um, is increasingly like this refusal to pay for psychotherapy versus other types of therapy because psychotherapy is seen as kind of getting at the deeper kind of issues that it might not be as quick fix solution now you're quote unquote fixed type of therapy right and so you have like these changes of like on one hand we have this kind of more public conversation about therapy about mental health that are seen as these important social advancements to have those conversations to destigmatize mental health but there's also this push for kind of quick solutions, quick healing, right? Um, quick, you know, going well, that you also see being implemented in how like therapy and insurance is getting entangled. And so in some countries there, there's these push, there's pushes against like paying for psychotherapy through insurance or um, yeah, psychoanalysis through insurance versus like other forms of therapy that are seen as getting you back to work quicker or getting you back to your quote, quote unquote self quicker. And I think that zeitgeist is part of like some of the technology stuff too. Give him cocaine. He'll be back at the desk in no time. (laughs) What if those voices in his head were telling him to hit those KPIs, baby? (laughs) And the cocaine has a better legacy in psychoanalysis than like other forms of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. I'll say that for it. 